Judges 12 is where we are, so go ahead and open your Bibles there, and there's some notes for you to follow along with this morning. I don't know if you traveled this Thanksgiving, but I did. I was just up in the area uh, near Rough and Ready, and Rough and Ready is an interesting little town. It wins the award of being uh, one of the most unique uh, town names in the country, but it's famous for this. Uh, it decided in the year 1850 to secede from the nation. Because they didn't want to have mining taxes going on, so it decided to become its own country. Crazy mountain folk, right? I mean, they just decided, we're going to go be our own thing, and they declared themselves the Great Republic of Rough and Ready. A year later, uh, perhaps with the guns of the nation standing by, I'm not sure, but they decided that was a bad idea, and they voted to see if they could get back into the Union, and now they're all happy campers with the, the U.S. once again. I bring that up because of this. What if every California town decided, we don't like this, and we decided to secede from the Union, right? This was the old Wild West back in the 1850s near Rough and Ready. And that scenario, that idea of, well, fine, we'll just pull away and be our own thing, is exactly what's happening in Judges 12. We have a nation that's starting to get fractured and scattered, and there's now tribal loyalties rather than national loyalties, we just wrapped up from a, from verse uh, from chapter 11, this guy Jephthah, that was from last week. He provides a stunning victory against foreign oppression, but it brings no peace whatsoever. Now there's intense tribal jealousies that lead to even more fighting. Remember as you read Judges, for the rest of your life, always think this. Everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. That's Judges in a few words. Everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. We don't like the mining tax. We're out of here. So what's happening in Judges 12 is all these tribal factions going on. Instead of it happening at an individual level, each person is doing what's right in their own eyes, now individual tribes or collections of tribes are saying, we're going to collectively do what's right in our eyes where it should have been a national, God's people kind of thinking. Here's one of the things that this shows. The sin cycle that we've been on, we've been going on and on and on with this whole idea of a sin cycle. And with each lap of the sin cycle that we see in Judges, we see kind of this downward winding spiral. And you can kind of catch that in your own life too. Each lap of the sin cycle brings more baggage, it's a little bit more extreme, and the rebellion uh, is, is more blatant and bold. Uh, this is a statement found in Romans, uh, but I can almost hear the people of Judges figuring this one out, uh, saying this, Who will save us from the wretched people that we are? If we aren't fighting with our neighbors, we turn and we fight with our own brothers. Who will save us? Now, Judges doesn't record that, but I know the human heart, and Romans records that. And I've cried that out. So enter a hero to save the day. It's a different season, it's a different year, and frankly, there's a different judge being used, but catch this, it's the same hero. Every time it's the same hero, right? It's God who is at work in the judges, not the judges themselves. God is the one at center stage. Today's passage is going to help us see that in sort of a different light that was just really, really fun to discover this week. How much is said by what is not said? Now, that depends. If I'm a college professor and I'm super shy 
And I get up in front of the class, and this is the first day of class. I say, hello, I'm Professor Carlson. And then I just stand here and stare at you because I'm shy and don't want to teach. Not a lot's being said by unsaid, just that you want your tuition back, right? That's not a meaningful silence. But if I ask my beloved bride, I say, Becky, what are, just, just name some things that you love about me. Let's pick ten. Are there ten things? Tell me ten things you love about me. And she goes, is that a telling silence? Yeah. Is there a lot said in what's unsaid? Yeah. In that moment, there's a lot of communication that's going on, even if there aren't a lot of words that are being said. Here's what we're going to do this morning. Our passage this morning in my Bible is about this big. We're going to listen to the communication going on from the Bible by what is not said this morning. If you go kind of beneath the surface of this picture, you see there's a lot going on. Those are surf photographers. From the beach, you wouldn't see any of that. But when you go below the surface, you kind of see that there's a lot going on. You know, some parts of the Bible are like a yearbook. Think about genealogies, right? There's genealogies in both the Old and the New Testament. Uh, there are personal sections of letters where Paul or someone else will say, greet this person and tell that person that I'm praying for them and this, that, and the other thing. Today's passage falls into this sort of category. I mean, there's names recorded, there's the birth and death, maybe the location, maybe the length of their, of their reign or their life, but not much else. It's almost like a tombstone or a yearbook. Just basic facts are being given. Now think about yearbooks for a moment. We did a garage sale and a guy came wanting, wanting to know if we had any yearbooks at our garage sale. And I was kind of interested in that. I thought, why on earth would you care about other people's yearbooks? He's like, I collect old yearbooks. I'm like, whatever floats your boat. You know, that's cool. That's fine. You think about your own yearbook. Yearbooks really, really, really matter to the people who were alive and there at the school when the yearbook happened, right? I mean, it really is important that that yearbook was produced and that that thing happens. However, in a different era, things fade. Memories fade, as does anyone's care level for who was MVP that year or who was the prom queen or any of that. People just don't care about that, especially if it happened in a different location. So since the Bible is God's book, God wrote a book. It's called the Bible. He used people to do it. What on earth are genealogies, personal greetings, and today's section teaching about him. Now, if like myself, you have come to discover through trial and error, through much turmoil, that God's word is living and active. It was really written by God. It's applicable today. Then you approach a section like this, not with your doubter hat on, but with your detective hat on. You go, God, I know you have a purpose for this. I know that if I don't see it, it's just because I don't understand it yet. But you recorded this for all of time. You preserved it for all of history. It made it into the Bible. It must be important. So we're coming to a section that is like one of those. Ready? Judges chapter 12, starting in verse 8, says this. Follow along with me if you're there. After him, talking about Jephthah from last week, after him, Ibsen of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gave in marriage outside his clan. And 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibsen died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel. And he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried 
at a city that I can't pronounce in the land of Zebulun. Verse 13. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. And he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died and was buried at Parathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. Now, I know what you're thinking on first read. Riveting. Right? You're just like, wow. God is so good. Here's the truth. God is so good. And in what we just read, I want to show you some things. I said at the start of this series that Judges was kind of a dark book. It's a dark period in Israel's history. I have a hunch if man wrote the Bible, you'd want to kind of shove this part of Israel's history under the rug. Some of you just spent time with Thanksgiving. Were there topics that were off subject, like like not allowed to be talked about? Right? There are some skeletons that people are like, we're just leaving in there. We're not even talking about that. That was a dark period where people just kind of brush right past it. Instead, Judges records this period of Israel's history, failure upon failure after failure, each one getting worse. And against that backdrop of darkness, God's character is able to shine really clearly. We see the stars, we see the moon reflected brilliantly against an inky black sky, right? That's the book of Judges. So we're going to see God, uh, we're going to see four truths about God that we learn from three judges who share half a chapter in the Bible. Here we go. Number one is this. God is not even Stephen. God is not even Stephen either in playing time or in his great hand of providence in what he dishes out and allows. God is not even Stephen in playing time. God's word is selective. Here's what I think when I read this. I think, you know what? There's not much detail given in those people's lives. We must not need to know the details of those people's lives. They just lived, they died, and in between, they were used by God to judge Israel. You know, in a culture where notoriety and being noticed is absolutely worshipped, isn't it instructive to know that most of the disciples... Several of the judges, which we would call minor judges, were included in the story. They're not minor judges because they were less important. They're minor because we don't know much about them. God hasn't chosen to give us the details. Do me a favor. Take out a pen and with your notes right there, I want you to start writing down the disciples. Just start writing down the disciples' names. Okay? Now, I'm not going to quiz you on this. I'm not going to ask you for your answers. So let your heart rate fall back down to normal. Just start doing it. Here's my hunch as you do that. I think many of you in this room would write Peter, James, John. Yep, got that. And then I think it would fall off dramatically. Like, hmm, Matthew. I know it's a book. I think he was a disciple. Yeah, Matthew. That sounds about right. Uh, Bartholomew, Bartimaeus, Bart something. There was Bart. Judas. We got Judas, right? He's the one that betrayed. We'll put him in. But after that, maybe it starts to get a little hazy. You can stop writing if you want. Some of you are like, List takers, you're like, I have to finish now. Don't Google it. Do it from memory. Here's the point. Here's the point. Peter, James, and John. Y'all get that one? Okay? That one's those are pretty easy, right? After that, catch this. Most people on the street, maybe even in the church, would remember and notice Judas more than many of the disciples. Those who remained faithful, those who were with Jesus, right? Those who didn't turn away. We don't know a thing about them. The disciples! Twelve people who were with Jesus, they're at the center of the center of the story in all of history. 
and there's not a ton on many of their lives. The Bible is telling in what the Bible doesn't tell. It's instructive for us to look at that. By telling us so little about these three judges, the Bible tells us a lot about the Bible. It tells us that the purpose of the Bible is not to tell us about every Ibsen and Elon and Abdon. Its focus is not on man's life, but on God's action. Here's a little theology wording for you. The Bible is theocentric. It centers on God. It doesn't mean that man doesn't count, but that man is not center. I hope that reading a passage like this and seeing this in the scripture actually informs how you go about reading the Bible. Because it affects other parts of it too. Think about all the people that have a ton written about them. There's a certain man-centeredness to us all, and if you're a woman, you're included in that. There is a self-centeredness in us that we bring to reading the Bible. If we see Ibsen and we don't know much about him, we're like, I don't want to know much about him. But if there's a person that has a ton written about them, here's what we can begin to do. We all can begin to lift that person up. Ever had that question asked of you? If you meet one person in all of history and it wasn't Jesus, if you're, if you're a Christian, who would it be? You'd be like, oh, Paul. Why, why Paul? Because he's a pretty fascinating mind, brilliant mind. All these things happened to him. Wouldn't it be cool to sit down and have a cup of coffee with Paul? Absolutely. What happens is us, like in the days that, that they were around, we can tend to elevate and isolate people as well. You must be so important. I want to be around you. There's a certain glory that I'm, that I'm drawn in to be around you. Catch what these people do. Even though the man-centered tendency is to make it all about them, these people repeatedly said, it's not about me. Think about John the Baptist. What was John the Baptist's role? It was to roll out the red carpet and point to the Lamb of God. And as he did so, he said, look, there's the Lamb of God. And then he said, I must decrease. He must increase. And then at some point, he's like, stop following me. Leave me alone. Right? Why? Because... Because they were, they were his followers. There's a certain sense that, that people need their loyalties transferred, even almost in a forceful way. How about Peter? There's a recorded scene where Peter's telling people, Get up! Stop worshiping me! I'm a man just like you! Peter had a healthy fear of God. If he received an ounce of worship of God's glory, he knew there was trouble attached to that. How about Paul? Paul said it's not about Paul or Cephas or Apollos. He's teaching the church. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.13, Was Paul crucified for you? He's talking about himself. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Why did he have to say that so strongly? Because people make it about people. And if you're a minor prophet and there's only a few verses, we don't even have a time of day for you. But you're famous. You're, you have notoriety. There's a lot about you. We want to draw in and be near that. Think about this. God is winning a war. You think about little kids' soccer where everyone gets equal playing time, right? They're not in a battle. They're in a social experiment, right, where just everyone gets equal playing time. Everyone gets the trophy. That's our soccer leagues right now And uh, until you get up in the upper divisions. Uh, God is winning a war. He's not coaching youth soccer. So he's not giving everyone equal playing time in the battle. He is doing what's best for victory. He's not... Only not even Stephen in playing time, but he's not even Stephen in providence. Think about last week. Jephthah had one child, a daughter. Remember what he did with that? He made this rash vow with his mouth. He ends up offering a human sacrifice to God, which is repulsive to him then. He never asked for it. It's repulsive to him now. So he's left childless. 
Jephthah, one of the judges. Notice that Jephthah is sandwiched between Jair, earlier in the book, with 30 sons, and now Ibsen with 60 children, and Abdon, 70 descendants. God is not even Stephen in the hand of providence. Now, we live in an interesting age where people sometimes view children as a nuisance or a bother, and that you certainly wouldn't want to have too many, or else it would cramp on sort of your lifestyle. Uh, We clearly don't subscribe to that view. But back in the day, if you had a lot of children, here was the prevailing thought, whether you were a follower of Yahweh or not, is this, that children are a gift from God, a reward from him. So all these kids meant blessing. People would have looked at these guys and said, social clout, political clout, this person's blessed by God. And yet what we see in the providence of God is lots of kids, one child that ends up getting sacrificed by his own hand, lots of kids. God is not even Stephen in providence. Matthew Henry said it this way of this passage, some are increased, others diminished. Both are the Lord's doing. Here's our response, typically. Why? Why, God? We demand to know an answer to this. Why does God give to some and take away from others? Why does it seem that some are so sheltered from life's storms and other people seem to walk right into the next one after they get out of one of them? Providence is a curious thing. We cheer God's providence when the angels warn Joseph and the baby, right? That's coming up. We're going to talk about that a lot. Jesus is spared. But what about all the other toddlers in Bethlehem? That's the providence of God. Peter is miraculously spared in Acts chapter 12. He's on his death night. He's he's been sentenced to death by Herod Agrippa. And then he shows up. He's freed miraculously. He shows up at the very prayer meeting where they're praying, praying for him to spare his life. Remember that story, Acts chapter 12? And we cheer the providence of God. God, you're so good to let this happen. Do you know in that same chapter, James, brother of John, is killed by the same guy, Herod Agrippa? Providence of God. We don't cheer that so much, right? Here's the point. God's providence is not even Stephen. You will frustrate yourself to no end looking looking around for God to be fair in your mind of fair. God's providence is both marvelous and mysterious. I'll tell you, as we lead worship, as we pick songs and sing songs as a community, we do, we do a lot of work to both celebrate the greatness of God and marvel at and clinch and just go, God, we're hanging on to the mysterious part of of, of God's providence where we go, we don't know why this is happening, but we're going to rejoice in it because we know that you're good. Because we recognize on any given morning, people are walking in with both sides of God's providence in their hand that week. Judges shows us And history shows us that it's not about the individuals. God is working and moving, and he uses people, but it's not about the individuals. Next we see this, that God is glorious and gracious. If you're trying to understand the Bible, and you've lost sight of the glory of God, then let me tell you what's happened. It's like all the lights have gone out, and you're just fumbling around in the dark trying to understand some things. The Bible has a few great themes, and that's one of the marvelous great themes, is God's glory. 
So as you read the scriptures, one of the things that will kind of lift you off that track of making it man-centered and keep it on God is think about this. God's interested in his glory, so he wrote a book. That's, that, that's a part of what can just keep bringing your brain back to God's glory. We're reading between the lines today. Hebrews eleven six says this, And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, catch this part, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. God rewards those who earnestly seek him. Let me tell you that you're getting ripped off if you're, if you're surviving as a Christian on a verse of the day app. Getting totally ripped off. That's like walking up to the checks mix, grabbing one little checks and being done with Thanksgiving dinner. Rip off, right? If that's, if that's your Bible intake, I'm just telling you, I'm telling you straight up, you will be sick, you will be anemic, you will have zero energy to do anything spiritually in the same way that eating a Chex Mix for Thanksgiving would do for you. Those who seek him earnestly will say this, God, every time I read this passage, every time I go back to this book, I'm realizing more and more that there's more for me, that there's more for me. Would you, would you give me a hunger to keep coming back for seconds, thirds, and fourths? Reading between the lines today is not adding our own meaning to it, but listening diligently. Sitting with a text long enough to say, God, you put these three judges in the book of Judges. We know almost nothing about them. If you go read commentaries, at least the commentaries I have, you know how much is written? Here's what the Bible has written. Here's what the commentary has written. They're like, yeah, there's these three guys. Next. And they keep moving on because guess who's next? Samson. Have you ever heard of Samson? Of course you have. Because there's a lot written about Samson. Reading between the lines is not putting our own meaning in, but listening and seeking diligently. By shining the spotlight on certain things, God is telling us actually what isn't important. You know what God's not out to do? He's not out to satisfy our curiosity for every Ibsen that's out there. Yeah, but what about this, that, other thing? It didn't matter, evidently. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. It's a great verse to keep lodged in your brain in this information age we live in. It says the secret things, it's going to contrast that and revealed things. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. That verse screams this truth. God is glorious and far beyond all of our understanding. If mystery isn't a part of your relationship with God, you're not relating to the God of the Bible. You aren't. You're, you're probably relating to a God of your own making that fits within your scope of your brain. Relating to a being so different than us means that mystery is a part of it. The Bible speaks to all of life, but doesn't answer every question. These revelations are a gift. Do you see? They're not just to be received, but they're to be obeyed. These things that we've given to you, they belong to you and your children. Not so that you can put them in a little, you know, family heirloom box and hang on to them. But that you may do all the words of the law. Just as food was set before you probably this last Thanksgiving, it's one thing to receive the food. Right? 
It's another thing to give thanks for what you've received. Hopefully you did both of those. You don't get the nourishment until you take a bite. And you do them. And it becomes a part of you. That's a great little word picture for what it means to to receive the words of Christ and to do them. The nourishment comes from putting it into action. James says it this way. Faith without works is what? It's dead. It's not enough to just receive it or have it. You put it into practice. Back to Judges now. Did each judge have an entire backstory complete with lots of courageous acts and wicked components to their life? Yes. Each of these three judges had a whole story like Gideon, like Jephthah, like Samson, like Deborah, the ones that we know about. Yet, as an instrument, dare I say from last week, a tool in the hands of the Redeemer, His glory... God's, his status, God's, his name, God's name, are what matter. Ibsen and Elon and Abdon are forgettable like the rest of us. And that's a great thing. Sin nature corrupts things. So God invites us into his party, into his play, and we become kind of like glory sponges. That's how it goes. Imagine that only a handful of people who were at the audition, made the callback. And then of those callbacks, you got a part in the play. You are absolutely overjoyed because of all the people that tried out, you were chosen. And in your great joy, you go and tell everyone and you Facebook and you do all these things, hey, I have a part. Isn't it human nature that you enjoy this until you start noticing the amount of lines and limelight that other people have? All of a sudden... We are all prone to go, I could have said that way better. I'm way better looking. I'm funnier. I'm prettier. I could have nailed that. I should have had more lines. Why did they get chosen? James 4 says this, your life is a mist. And all such boasting is evil. We can all do this either overtly and externally or internally and just subtly in our own minds. We would never say this out loud because our, our side of the coin of pride is, is more reserved. It's, it's about self, but we're never going to put ourselves out there, but we'll think it. You're the kid at the birthday party who's unable to enjoy the cake and the party favors and the jump house because you aren't the one with all the gifts and all the attention. Here's what I see in these three judges is this. Once you come to realize it's not your party, you can enjoy this life. The flip side of this truth statement is this. If you demand to be the center, you miss out on the inclusion that God has for you in his story, in his play. You have a part. But you won't fulfill that part or enjoy that you have a part so long as you want to be center of attention. I was letting my mind just kind of mull on this for a little bit, and I thought, wow, what if we could weigh out joy like little gold bars? You know, when something just, when you're just joyful, and there's a gold bar sitting there, I wonder what it would look like visually to see how much joy collectively is stolen from people because of this very point. The enemy whispering in our ear, you're missing out. This should be about you. 
go take a bite. You deserve to know the knowledge that God has. And we get confused about the secret things that belong to God and the revealed things that belong to us, and we're constantly peeking over at someone else and what's happening with them. The Bible says this, that God opposes the proud. This is a sponge. Our sin nature makes us glory sponges. God has given each one of you a measure of glory. We're made in His image. What happens with our sin nature is we want to, we want to absorb other people's glory, sometimes by bringing them out, down, sometimes by sidling right up next to superstars. Don't we all have a story where we saw so-and-so or got so-and-so's autograph or were shared a flight with so-and-so? Glory sponges. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. A mirror just reflects, right? That's all a mirror does. A mirror reflects the glory that's being shown into it. So this time, it's not really any of the judges who are valuing or waiting anything. It's God who waits those who are glory reflectors over those who are glory sponges. Now, I love that my little mirror here happens to be broken right down the middle. There's a lot of good theology in that. I'll let you and your small group figure out that one. God is not only glorious, but he's also so gracious. He's so gracious to include us. You know who ought to know that better than anyone in the room? Ourselves, right? Because we know ourselves. We've lived with ourselves the longest. And we go, man, God, you know all of that. Nothing's hidden from your sight. And you still gave me a part in the play. God is gracious to include us in his story. Let me show you another way of kind of seeing... Uh, these three judges. Here's another way of, of, of seeing them visually. This is a, a Bible program that I use, and this is a, a timeline feature that kind of shows who lived in, in, in the times of other people. Who was a contemporary of these people? So you could look at this, and Ibsen, Elan, and, and Abdon could be bummed that they occupy such a small part of this screen, or they could be thrilled that they're included in this. Here we are talking about them centuries later. God included them in the story. Do you see the difference? Oh, I have such a tiny part. Woe is me. Look at me. I'm right up there next to Samson. You've heard of him. You've never heard of me, but I got in. I'm a part of this thing. God is so gracious. You know, Christians don't need Thanksgiving to be thankful, right? We celebrate Thanksgiving. But even if you pick Thanksgiving songs... Most of our repertoire is is Thanksgiving-focused. Christians are thankful every day because they remember they were invited into a party that they had no business being invited into. Once they got there, they realized they didn't have the right clothes to get in, and they, they would have been thrown out, but for the fact that Christ is our robe and covers us, provides us with the clothes, and we get in. That's the good news that we focus on all the time. That's why we're so thankful. You should be miserable. Your life's in the tank. You just lost your job. All these things happen. You're like, man, I'm thankful. I'm good with God. A friend of mine and I were talking this last week, and he really understands this. I, we were catching up after a long time. I said, tell me different things. And things circumstantially are really just going kind of terrible. And here's how he wrapped it up, having no idea what I'm going to talk about. He said this. You know, He said, I'd rather be an armpit hair in the body of Christ 
than anything else outside of Christ. And I thought about that, I'm like, totally true. I mean, you would, you would just be thrilled that you're any part in the body of Christ versus anything else elsewhere. Well said. All right, one more shining example that this section specifically shows off is this, that God has conquered death. Death of godly leaders is noted in this book. Joshua 2.8 dies, uh, Othniel dies in chapter 11, Ehud dies in chapter 4, Gideon dies in chapter 8, Tola in chapter 10, Jair in chapter 10. But now here's what we see. By seeing so little detail between these lives, there's almost this staccato of death that, 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 that goes on. So you have Jephthah dying in verse 7, Ibsen in verse 10, Elon in verse 12, and Abdon in verse 15. God raised this person up, he was used by God, and he died. God raised this person up, he was used by God, and he died, and he died, and he died. Here's what happens when we see that. There's a lot of death in a few verses, and it dawns on us. My life has an expiration date. My life has an expiration date. These guys were born, they were used by God, and they're dead and gone now. My life is going to be like that. It makes us cherish a Messiah whose reign isn't stopped by death. If your hope is in princes, we read that psalm last week, his plans go down to the grave the moment he dies. It's over. The Savior that we follow isn't Gideon. Thank you, God. It's not Jephthah. It's not any of these guys. It's the one who never dies. Look at Hebrews chapter 7 and the difference that's there. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But, talking about Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues, how long? Forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I love that consequently. Because he lives forever, his, his office of priest never goes away. And so he's our priest forever. His defeat of death means that he can offer us the same thing. Look at 2 Timothy 1.10. Our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The good news is that this life isn't your party. That's great news. This is God's story, and we're invited in. We get to be a part of something much bigger than us. And in that, you find something worth living for. Our Redeemer turns glory thieves or glory sponges into people who become joyfully forgettable, who live totally committed to the glory of their Savior. This turns thanksgiving on its head. This, this understanding our real state before and after the cross <coughs> give us reason to celebrate and be thankful totally in spite of our, of, of our circumstances. Listen to Psalm 30, verse 11. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Catch this part. 
that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. When you understand that this is God's story, God's party, and we're invited in and we have a part, there's nothing that can bring you down. Nothing. Why? Because that never changes. That's never going away. We're going to sing a song for you right now called Forgettable. And I borrowed the title of our sermon from this band, Everybody Duck, that used to lead worship up at Hume Lake. And they wrote this great song, Forgettable, that so expresses sort of this, this dual tone of, here's what goes on in my life. Think Romans 6, 7, and 8 when you heard this song. But here's what I long to be true of my life. It's going to bring up pride. Remember, pride has two sides to the same coin. One side is self-promoting. One side is self-putting down. But both of them have something in common. They're self-focused, right? So when you hear pride in there, consider that part of it. Here's, here's a line I want you to look for and listen for in the song. I, I will plan every step so that in all that I do, Jesus, none would see me but see through me to you. I want for us as a church to be used to not remaining quiet about the unforgettable name. There's another book that is mentioned in the scriptures. And I want you just to close your eyes. There's nothing to see on the screen. Just close your eyes as I read a portion of this revelation, this revelation that's been gifted to us. It's from Revelation 20. It says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. With your eyes closed, hearing that, you are before the throne. How are you judged? How do you measure up? Taken out of context, a cult could form right here that says, do a lot of good works and make sure that on judgment day you have enough good deeds to cover you. Does that make any sense? That is a lie. Justice doesn't work that way. If I wrong you terribly and kill one of your children, no amount of good things by me could ever make that right to you. That's not how justice works. Jesus Christ, our substitute, died in our place. Because of the payment of His blood, our sin can legally be dismissed. Because He took our crummy resume with all the junk that we've ever done and will do, He exchanged it so that we get His resume. So that what's been written about us is perfection in thought, in word, in deed for all of time. This, my friends, is your only hope on Judgment Day. That the Father would look and see the spotless Lamb of God in your place. 
But like a Thanksgiving meal, not enough to believe it, not enough to give thanks for it or even receive it, you must eat this. It must become a part of you. Jesus took bread, he broke it, he gave to his disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. God, we receive the gift of eternal life from our high priest who holds the office forever because he's conquered death. God, you are marvelous and mysterious. And I pray that we as a people would receive the good and the bad from you. God, that we would afresh this morning place our our lives in your hands and rest in that. God, keep bringing us back to the joy of being included in your book, in your story. And God, I thank you for the relative, just lack of division and backbiting and quibbling that can go on in churches, God. There's so much energy expended toward other people, being devoted to one another in brotherly love, considering other people's needs is more important than our own. Tonight, God, as the team goes out, some gathered sweatpants, others get to ride a Bart and hand them out. God, we are just, we're thrilled to be a component in this. I pray your blessing on the work that goes on. Father, for all the ministries represented in this room that have to do with caring for an ailing family member, with, with uh, God, just raising their own kids, with, with working on and building a marriage that's centered on you, God. This truth changes the trajectory of all of those when we don't demand to be center of attention. You said it this way, that those who wish to find their life, give it away. And God, I pray that we would walk in that, that we would trust you in that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.